Good morning. As Kyle mentioned before, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 today, beginning in verse 12. So, if you would, you can have a seat. Sorry about that. Go ahead and open there. I'm thankful to be with you in this capacity again. Growing up, I always really wanted to be able to sing really well. But God did not bless me in that regard. In fact, so much so that in, in high school when I was in choir, uh, our, our teacher, Mr. Bell, he asked me just to lip sync. Don't sing, just mouth the words during the song. So, because of that and, 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 and whatnot, I never really felt at home singing in worship. But, but preaching is a different story. And so I'm, I'm very appreciative to Mark uh, for giving me this opportunity because to me this is my greatest act of worship is to teach. Um, and so I'm very thankful for that. If you have your Bible, maybe it's one of the new study Bibles, maybe it's an old Bible, maybe it's a Bible app. Start with me in verse 12. I'm going to read the passage and then I'll open us in prayer. Paul writes, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray to You today, and we submit ourselves to hear from Your Word what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. I ask, Spirit, that you'd walk among us, that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a mind to comprehend that truth. I pray that you would empty ourselves, or help us empty ourselves, rather, of our fears, our anxieties, our passions and desires for things that are of this world and not of yours. I pray that you'd fill us with your Spirit. And God, I ask that you'd use me as a tool in your hand this morning to not just give my opinion about this truth, but to give the truth itself. Help me to be faithful to your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last week, Mark covered a passage in which Paul lays out what from the outside looking in would be a list of things that are righteous. And Paul, of course, turns on his head and he says, no, all all that stuff is rubbish. There's something far greater than that, and that is, of course, knowing Christ fully, becoming like Him even to the point of death. But Paul makes an important transition here in verse 12. And what he does is he moves us from talking about justification 
into the realm of sanctification. And it's a very important transition. Paul was hammering home last week that there's no amount of little old ladies to help across the street or orphans to feed or homeless to house. And no matter how much of that you do, you'll never become righteous. You'll never become justified. Rather, he mimicked what Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, when Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Knowing Christ is that eternal life. So we pick up this transition in verse 12 from justification to sanctification. And what Paul does is he uses the metaphor of a race to illustrate this. This metaphor does a few things. One, it serves to show us that it's long, right? This is not, this is not something that just happens immediately, sanctification, but it's a lifelong pursuit. This metaphor also works because he's writing to Gentiles, right? Greeks. He's writing to literally a Greek city, Philippi. And, of course, the Greeks would be very familiar with the Olympic Games because the Olympics started in Greece, right? They're the originators. And to this very day, the marathon, which was born out of Greek lore, closes out the Olympics. So it would be as if today I came with a Super Bowl metaphor for you. We all, we all have that point of reference. We know the lingo. We can see it in our minds. We've watched it on TV. Maybe even some of you have attended a Super Bowl, at least a football game, right? I want to break this passage down today into five categories. Paul's going to discuss what the right attitude for this race is, what the right effort will look like, what the right goal, how to surround ourselves with the right people, and finally what the right outcome is. And we're going to take this on a verse-by-verse um, breakdown. So let's look back at verse 12. Paul states, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul starts out with a correct frame of mind here in verse 12. He just got off telling us that there's surpassing worth in knowing Jesus Christ. But he hasn't obtained that yet. No, he presses on. So this is the attitude by which we start our race of sanctification. The idea here is there's work yet to be done. And as a runner presses toward his goal, so Paul presses on toward perfect knowledge of Christ. He further states his attitude and his frame of mind when he says that he does this. He presses on to make it his own because, why? Christ Jesus made him his own. Now, I don't want to get on a, a, a long rabbit trail here, but there's a major nugget of theological truth in that last phrase there, that Christ Jesus made him his own. You see, salvation, justification, isn't found inside of us. We can't go out and grab it. We can't go get it. We have to be enabled. Christ first must reach out and make us his own and put us into this race. And then it is up to us in obedience to run this race towards sanctification. It's what the great Reformed theologians refer to as unconditional election, that God chooses us to run in this race, and now it is up to us to run it with endurance. So if you find yourself running that race of sanctification today, it's because you've been chosen out of this world by your Creator, 
He's plucked you off of your own road to Damascus, so to speak, as he did for Paul. The fact that Jesus has laid hold of Paul did not give Paul an excuse to sit idle, right? He didn't saunter toward the goal. That's not, what, that's not the, the metaphor he's given us here. He's given us a metaphor of a race. Matthew Henry, which was a late 17th century pastor and theologian, noted in this passage that Paul was as ambitious about being sanctified as he was of being justified. Think about that for a minute. He was as ambitious to be sanctified in his life, set apart toward God, as he was as being justified, knowing God in the first place. Although Paul recognized that his, the perfection that he sought here was not going to be attainable in this present life, his attitude was that he would pursue it. Let's look at verse 13 because he tells us about what effort that takes. So how do we press on? He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So he boils it down to one thing, which is progress, right? So think back again to last week. He's got this whole laundry list of things that he did that from the outside looking in would seem righteous. And he says, no, forget it. It's garbage. It's rubbish. I'm going to forget that. I'm going to forget my successes, right? He's also going to forget his failures. Because if you remember the book of Acts, when Jesus quite literally makes him his own on the road to Damascus, Paul's going to do what? He's, going, he's, he's pursuing the persecution of the church, even to the point of death. Think about Stephen. Paul also leaves that behind. So no amount of right or wrong, righteousness or unrighteousness, would hold Paul back from this straining forward to what lies ahead. So he doesn't let for failure or success. He leaves it where it is and he progresses. So when you think in your life, do you ever get hung up on your failures? Right? It's very common, isn't it? You, you screw something up and you think, oh gosh, God will never use me. Maybe God doesn't even love me anymore. Yeah, you start having this self-doubt. You get paralyzed. And so you either stop running or you take a hiatus. Right? What about your successes? Have you ever been successful in an area of your life? Not just spiritually, but any area of your life. And you think now you can stop and smell the roses or take a, take a breather? You're like a yo-yo dieter who you lose 10 pounds, right? And you feel great about it, and so you go out and celebrate, right? Do you buy a bag of kale chips? No. No, you get the biggest slice of chocolate cake you can find. And you're like, you know what? I got this. I've lost 10 pounds. And then 10 pounds from now, you think, what happened? I stopped to celebrate, and I'd lost my goal. I I forgot the effort. That's what's going on here. The Greek word Paul uses for straining here denotes a runner who is stretching out across the finish line. See that image on the screen. I'm sure you've seen this if you've watched the Olympics before. You've got two sprinters going down, and the goal is within reach. And Who's going to win? It's so close. But that one runner, who she leans forward and she strains her neck out, she beats him by a what? A nose, right? That's what we say. That's the image Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm forgetting what I've done, good and bad, and I strain forward and I, to, to what lies ahead of me. I think often we make sanctification a much more difficult task than it really is. It's not some mystical force that happens to some of us indiscriminately and passes over others. Rather, it's a deliberate choice to progress 
in your relationship with Christ. I want you to think of one thing right now, whatever it is. Just go through your mind real quick, your filing cabinet, so to speak, and pluck out one thing that you would like to see a success in, that you would like to strive towards. Maybe it's holding your tongue the next time you have an opportunity to curse somebody. Maybe it's changing the channel to avoid consuming media that's spiritually unhealthy. Maybe it's putting your phone down when you get home so that you can spend more time with your spouse or your children. If you do that one thing today or tomorrow or this week or even this year, if you progress in that area, if you strain toward that goal, you've made progress. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Knowing Christ, right, is what he wants. He wants to know him perfectly, so much so that he, he wants to know the power of his resurrection, becoming like him even in death. Knowing that he won't actually achieve that in his life, he says, this one thing I do, I forget everything that's come before, and I strain to make progress toward that end. Right now, in my own personal life, I'm, a comp- I'm attempting to cut sugar out of my life, right? So every day I get home, literally every day I get home, and I tell Joy, I say, came this close to buying that cheese danish with my coffee this morning, but I didn't do it, right? I made progress. Now, I'm not a fool. I know that I'm going to eat sugar in my life. I can't completely rid myself of it. It's practically in everything, and I'm known for my sweet tooth, but I'm making progress there, right? And that's what it's like in our spiritual walk. We want perfection. We desire it. We know, though, that we're going to fail along that journey. We're, we're not perfect individuals, But because Christ has come and He's laid His hands on us and He's made us His own, it compels us with the right attitude that I'm going to strain forward. Not only am I going to have the right attitude, I'm going to have the right effort towards it. Consider the coaching contained in the following passage. Hebrews 12.1 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so here we have the writer of Hebrews telling us to do the exact same thing that Paul's doing. Lay it aside. What is that weight? What is that sin that's holding you back from running the race with endurance? And you need endurance because it's tough, right? Let's turn our minds now to the right goal. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What's the goal that Paul speaks of here? Is it not spiritual perfection in Christ himself? Paul stated that he wanted to know Christ and become like him, and that's the goal. But what about the prize? That church is received at the end of the race. And by that I mean it's received upon our death. So it's the perfect relationship with the one whom we've been striving to emulate. That's the prize. But let me restate it this way. The goal is to become like Christ. And Paul knows that he will not do that in the here and now, but he strives after it knowing he can make progress toward that goal. And his prize is the internal perfect relationship. The goal here is our striving, right? That's the goal we keep our mind on. That, no, i got to progress. It's one foot in front of the other. It's not sitting idle. It's not walking toward the goal. It's running. And that's it, right? That's what we're here to do together. 
The prize, which we can't obtain here in life, we will obtain upon our death when we're sitting in a perfect relationship with the perfect Creator. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. He says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. I really think there's two ideas in play here. Our striving toward perfection certainly is, is part of it. And that really means, I, I, I think, I, again, I want to clarify this, it means greater obedience and greater sanctification. Separating ourselves from the things of this world, separating ourselves unto God. We need to move away from our self-righteousness to a Christ-righteousness. There are many in this world, and there might be many of us here today, who are still looking at self-righteousness as the goal. That's, Paul says, no, let those of us who are mature think this way. Right? That is Christ-righteousness. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's. It's not about following the law or aiming for our good deeds that outweigh our bad deeds. It's reliance on Christ for justification and to enable us to be in the race of the pursuit of obedience that leads to greater knowledge of Him. But second, the thing that that those of us who are mature should think is that because we can't reach that full perfection here, that we shouldn't be discouraged by that, but rather, if anything, it should be encouraging that there's always another step to take. And while there's breath yet left in us, we still have a goal in which to pursue, right? It's not about hanging it up. It's not about sitting on the sidelines. It's, again, it's not about walking toward the goal. It's about running to it, sprinting towards it. Think about what Paul says in Romans 7, right? Many of you will be familiar with that passage. That's where Paul says, everything I want to do, I fail at. And everything that I don't want to do, that I want to avoid, I find myself succeeding at that. But the beautiful thing, outside of John 3.16, the most beautiful verse in all of Scripture to me is Romans 8.1. At the conclusion of that passage, he says, Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? How beautiful is that? And so let those of us who are mature think this way. That, yes, perfection's the goal. Perfect knowledge of Christ is the goal. But in all my failures and my successes, I'm not going to get caught up on it because there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I'm guaranteed the prize at the end. Let us live up to that. Look now at verse 17 through 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you And now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This year will be the fourth year I've run um, in the flying pig. Okay? I've run half marathon twice, I've ran the full marathon once. And what you'll notice in that race is a whole lot of people running that race alongside of you. But for me, who's always trained alone and run alone, I'm sort of still by myself out in that race, right? There's people going toward a common goal, but I don't know them, right? I'm not in a relationship with them. But there is, along the path, these pace leaders who hold this little stick and balloons on the top of the stick, and on it is a pace goal, right? Or or a finishing time goal, three three and a half hours for the marathon or an hour and 45 minutes for the half marathon, And along with those people, right, about a dozen or two dozen individuals have signed up to follow that person, right, to imitate them, to do what they do through the easy parts of the course, 
that guy shouting out, we got this, let's keep going, through the difficult times of the course, that, that lady saying, come on, push through this, you've got it. All the way to the finish line, they're together. They're in sort of a relationship there, right? They've got a common goal, and they are encouraging one another along that path. Paul here instructs us on the importance of others in our race. He talks both the positive influences and the negative influences that surround us. Now, he's not alone in his admonition. Consider what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. And I apologize, the, it's a lot here, so the, the type on the screen is kind of small. But the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law meditate, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do we gather? Why do you tend to your living community? Why did the early church meet daily? Of course, these are rhetorical questions. You know that answer, right? It's because we're in a race together. And what's great is that God gives us companions on which to help us through this race. There are men and women sitting here among us today who have gone before us. They've overcome obstacles. They've run that large hill that many of us want to throw in the towel on. They've pushed through pain and discomfort, and they've gained wisdom to guide us. And they have run a race worth imitating. It should encourage us in two ways. Number one is that we should look among ourselves here for people worth imitating. Paul instructs us in that end, right, to that end. We should look for discipleship and mentorship. If you don't have someone discipling you or mentoring you, find someone even this week. And secondly, it should encourage us to live a life and to run a race that's worth imitating. We ourselves can pass on the lessons we've learned along this path, right, along this journey. And if not, we run the risk to fall in line with the people found in verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And whether we like to admit it or not, we're either found in verse 17 today or in verse 18. We're either living a life worth imitating or we're living a life that is an enemy to the cross of Christ. We need to seek to surround ourselves with those who live a life worth imitating. And as Solomon tells us in Proverbs 27, he says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And that should be encouraging to us that we have that opportunity here. This leads us to what the right outcome is. Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
And so far in this passage, we've, we've pointed out that Paul demonstrates that we're not perfect, but we have to have a right attitude and that we should be compelled to pursue because Christ has laid hold of us. He also told us about the right effort, which talks about laying, laying aside all of our successes and all of our failures and striving toward progress. He gives us the right goal, which is to know Christ fully, and become like Him. He instructs us to surround ourselves with those who we want to imitate and to become worthy of imitation. But finally, Paul reminds us of the right outcome. And this is the prize that he talked about back in verse 14. He also tells it to the Corinthians. In his first letter to them, the ninth chapter, he says this, Do you not know that in a race, right, he's given us the same image, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. At the end of our race, there is an imperishable crown. It's not a crown of olive leaves that will eventually wilt and die, which is what they gave the Greek competitors. It's not a medal, which is what I get every year after I, c- I complete that half marathon, right? They give me this little medal. That thing, will, that, it'll rust away. It'll deteriorate. But what we're doing on this path of sanctification, at the end, it's a perfect relationship with Jesus Christ, we will know Him. We will become like Him. It tells us there that He'll transform our lowly bodies to be like His, a glorious body. And this is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I leave you with this. It's my prayer that we all become very serious about this race of sanctification. That we choose one thing this week and strive toward it. Strain out. Cross that finish line of that one thing. Forget your failures and successes. Press on to make Jesus Christ your own. Give Him lordship over every aspect of your life. And run.